you to the worship team. Rhonda, spectacular job. Now, give them a hand. When you can do Mariah Carey and handle all in the same service, you did pretty good. I'm so glad that each of you have chosen to be here today. If you have not been with us the past two weeks, then you've missed a couple things, but I'll try to catch you up real quick. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, we read that God was so excited about sending his son, Jesus, and he, couldn't, he just couldn't wait to tell the people. So 700 years before it actually happened, over 2,700 years ago now, God foretold about the Christmas story, and he chose a prophet named Isaiah. And he chose Isaiah to tell the world about an amazing baby that would be born and would be born the Prince of Peace. Our series that we're doing, uh, we're in week three of a four-week series titled The Prince of Peace. And if you have not been able to hear those, I hope you'll go online uh, to the website, www.hpcbrandon.org, in case you're listening online, www.hpcbrandon.org. Of course, if you're listening online, you've already been there, so you know how to get there. And listen to the last couple services. Today, we are continuing with the, the words of Isaiah's prophecy. So once again, I want to read the same passage of Scripture that we've read for the last couple weeks. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. By the time we get through, y'all are going to be very familiar with this passage of Scripture, and that's a good thing. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of, of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. There will be, they will be fuel for fire. And then those scriptures we're so familiar with. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will of government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Lord, today we ask that you bless your word. Help us to hear what you'd have us to hear. Help us to hear not with just our ears, but with our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Primarily what I want to do in this message is continue the progression that we have made through the four names that God says his son would be known by. Two weeks ago, we covered why he was called the Wonderful Counselor. 
Last week, we covered why he is called the mighty God. And today I want us to see why he is called everlasting father. And primarily, this is going to be a a heart-type message, a message that is aimed at warming up our hearts to this baby boy that was born over 2,000 years ago. But before I aim for the heart, I want to aim for your head a little bit and give some of you who like facts and figures and data, give you some brain candy this morning. So concentrate with me for a couple minutes. I'm going to give you quite a bit of information. Some of this might be a review for some of you, and much of it might be new to many of you. First, let's look at some geography. Boy, that's tiny. This area right here is Israel. We need a bigger map. Since we've talked about this the last couple weeks, some of you have probably wondered where Zebulon and Naphtali and Galilee of, Galilee of the Gentiles in the way of the sea are in Isaiah 1. So I want to show you. Right here is Naphtali. That's Zebulon. And that's Sea of Galilee. So we know where that is so far. It's in the northern part. When the children of Israel escaped from Egypt, which would have been over here somewhere, when they escaped from Egypt and moved to Canaan, their leader Joshua divided the land up into 12 portions, kind of like states or counties, and assigned each of these portions to one of the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. And so now a little history. There was a man who was eventually known as Israel. He was the grandson of Abraham. We all know who Abraham, we sing about Father Abraham and many sons. This was a grandson to whom God issued the promise that he would make him a great nation from which all the world would be blessed. And sometimes we hear that and we go, how could all the world be blessed through one person? Let's go back a little further. The Old Testament tells us that Abraham's first two sons were named Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is the father of of what we know now to be the Arab nations. And because they were not the inheritors of the promise... They have been at war with the descendants of Isaac ever since. You wonder why there's unrest in the Middle East? That's why. There will always be unrest in the Middle East. Isaac was the son to whom God continued his promise to make him a great nation. And Isaac had two sons named Esau and Jacob. Jacob was the second son of Isaac, and that's important. And here's why. The second son was not entitled to the same thing as the first son. But the name Jacob in Hebrew means supplanter or usurper. Now, what does that mean? Basically, that means someone who wrongfully takes someone else's place. In other words, they take what is rightfully that person's and they stand in for him and say, now it's mine. That's what Jacob did. Here's why these facts are important. According to ancient Near Eastern legal code, when a father died, his property was divided into equal shares based on the number of sons he had plus one. So if a father had three sons, the property was divided into four parts. If he had nine sons, his property would be divided into ten parts. And then the Near Eastern law dictated that the eldest son inherited two portions, what we refer to as a double portion. He got twice as much as everybody else. And the rest of the sons received one portion. But here is Jacob, the second son of Isaac, And of course, he wants what is not his, what is rightfully his brother Esau's.
He wants his double portion. So he pulls this sneaky move off, and he tricked his father Isaac. He tricked his older brother Esau out of the inheritance that was due to Esau, the firstborn son. Now, you would say, well, that's bad enough he did that, but it kind of became a way of life. His older brother wasn't the only person he conned. Jacob developed a habit of usurping so much that it became a lifestyle for him. I'll throw this in. Sometimes we do things, and while they might have been a mistake, and we shouldn't have done them, we find ourselves going back and doing them again. And if we're not careful, what started out as a mistake and what we revisited later becomes a way of life. And we get way down the road and we look back and say, how did I get here? The way you got here was your first, the first time you started. When you walked away from it, you should have stayed away from it. But Jacob had a lifestyle of taking advantage of people. But even though Jacob tricked his father and his brother Esau out of this blessing, the promise was now his. All of the details of this can be found in the 27th chapter of Genesis if you want to read it. You see, God had made a promise, and his promises stand, and God's promise was to build a mighty nation through Jacob out of which the whole world would be blessed. Since the world could hardly be blessed by a nation led by a conniving usurper, who wouldn't probably change his lifestyle and who would probably pass that type of lifestyle down to his children, God knew that he had to make a change in the man. He had to correct this character flaw in Jacob before Jacob could lead a great nation. Sometimes we wonder, well, why isn't God using me? I, I just wish God would use me. Maybe it's because there's something in our lives that God's trying to remove from us and he wants to remove it before he uses us for his glory. Just threw that in there for free. So one night, an angel of the Lord came to Jacob and wrestled with him about this nasty habit of conning people. The wrestling was so effective that the next morning God said, and I'm paraphrasing Genesis 32, 28, because of this wrestling together, you will no longer be known as a conniver or schemer. I'm going to change your name. Instead of being called Jacob, People will now call you Israel, which means one who wrestled with God. So now Jacob, who is now Israel, eventually had 12 sons. And each of those 12 sons eventually represented each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see where we're headed here. These 12 sons had many more sons, and eventually the clans of all these sons formed a great nation, which we know as Israel today. It is out of that nation that the whole world has been blessed. You say, well, how? Because just as it was prophesied, out of that nation, a Christ child was born, and his name was Jesus. So there is where it came from. And the entire world has been changed because of Jesus. That's pretty cool, right? Two of those 12 sons were Zebulon and Naphtali. Again, they're up here around the Sea of Galilee. Their descendants settled up in the northern part of Israel and flourished for about 600 years until the time of Isaiah when the Assyrian army, the Assyrians were over here, they came in from the northeast. They came and invaded, took over the region, and settled non-Jewish people there. 
Non-Jewish people are known as Gentiles. After the Assyrian invasion, this region was known as Galilee that was settled, resettled by Gentiles became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Here we are. Used to be Jewish people, now it was Gentile people that were predominantly there. So if you look back at your text in Isaiah 9.1, when Isaiah speaks of Zebulon and Naphtali, you can better understand why they were in gloom and how they'd been humbled. They had completely been decimated. They were wiped out. The Assyrians were a huge army. They were taking over the world at the time, the known world. The land that they had been living on, the, the Israelites had been living on, God had promised and given to them but now they had been conquered by an army and had been taken over. And again, this is the Sea of Galilee right here. We read about a lot about the Sea of Galilee in the New Testament. The lake, that lake is, in the, is known as the Sea of Galilee. Israel had three major trade routes, north-south highways, and one of the most important routes crossed through this valley right here by the Sea of Galilee, and then it came over here and went down by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was called the way of the sea. So what we see here is the description in Isaiah 9-1 pictures the same thing. Zebulon and Naphtali. Get my little pointer right here. Zebulon and Naphtali. The Galilee of the Gentiles, the bigger region, and the way of the sea, which came right by here, the major trade route, basically are all talking about the same geographical area. So it's not like we just get lost completely when we read that and go, blah, 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 blah. I, don't, I don't want to hear that. We know where it is. This is exactly what Isaiah is writing about, this area right here in the northern part of Israel. So now we better understand the geography. Let's look at the book of Isaiah itself. The book of Isaiah is called that for a very good reason. It's Isaiah's book because Isaiah wrote it. Nobody's surprised by that, are you? Isaiah wrote from about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. He lived down here in the southern part. He was a long ways from this, but he was writing because he knew the Assyrians were eventually going to come this way and they were going to take over. So he was writing about some serious stuff. All of this stuff in the northern part of Israel was happening. They were being chewed up and assimilated by the Assyrians. It was a scary time in Isaiah's history and in Israel's history. The first half of the book of Isaiah, we read that God is addressing the, the nation of Israel through Isaiah to warn them about this war and how to cope with it. In the second half of the book, the second section of the book, God addresses Israel about the aftermath of the war and to give them hope. He says, yes, if you read through the book of Isaiah, you'll see the first part is pretty gloomy. You're going to be taken into captive. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to lose this. You're gonna... It was all doom and gloom. But the second half turns around and it says, yes, that happened, but you're going to have hope because things are going to change. So there's two sections in the book, one about how to live before hope comes and one on how to live after hope comes. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are kind of the pre-hope verses, chapters. The last 27 are the during hope or in hope chapters, but all 66 chapters about knowing God. Kind of a side note here. The Bible has 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. 
And much of what was written in the Old Testament pointed to and fulfilled what happened in the New Testament. Much like the book of Isaiah, the first 66, or the the, the Old Testament, the first 66 books, were kind of like the pre-hope chapters. And the actual hope they spoke of was found in the New Testament. You know where it's found? The birth of Christ. Because everything back here pointed to that. And when that happened, hope was found. We can stop right there and I'd feel pretty good. But I want to keep going. We've covered some head stuff, now I want to cover some heart stuff. Let's read Isaiah 9, 6 again. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he will be called Everlasting Father. Of all the titles given to this child that Isaiah was prophesying of, this one probably raises the most questions. First of all, how can a child be a father? And secondly, how can a newborn be so old as to be called everlasting? The answer to question number one, he's going to grow up. The answer to question number two, he had an existence long before he came to earth. As we have done in the past couple of weeks, I want to look a little bit more closely at the, the original language that Isaiah wrote in, in Hebrew. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but let's look at this together. Everlasting father, translated into Hebrew, is basically a hyphenated word called avi aviad. Aviad is a, a term used for the perpetual head of a family or clan. And it pretty much means what you would think it would mean. Avi means father, and ad, A-D, means everlasting, eternal, or unceasing in duration. In John's gospel, John wrote this speaking of Jesus. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word here refers to Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The child born in Bethlehem would be recognized as eternal. He had no beginning, and he has no end. He existed long before he came to earth, and he will exist forever. So let's go back to that word, everlasting father. What did God have in mind when he gave Jesus this title? What did he want us to imagine when he announced this 700 years before it happened? And better yet, what difference does it make to us? My honest answer, from a technical standpoint, I don't really know for sure. But here's my best understanding. People were living in shaky times. Remember that whole battle thing that was going on? It was in the northern part of the country, and those people were moving south. People were living very shaky times, so they wanted something to cling to. Maybe that's you today. I've been there, and if if you're not there today, you've probably been there in the past. And if you've been there in the past or have never been there, you probably will be at some point. Most of us have gone through a point in life when things felt kind of shaky. Having been there, 
I know that people in shaky times want someone they can depend on, a father figure, if you will. Isaiah 9, 6, he said, the one who is coming is everlasting. In other words, he's eternal. He's always existed, and he always will exist. If you wonder about that one, look at this for a minute. One time in the New Testament, we read that there were some religious leaders that were questioning Jesus on a bunch of things. They questioned his authority. They questioned his origin. They questioned his motives. And it was really turning into a really ugly conversation. And Jesus knew that these religious leaders, they're basically Pharisees, these Pharisees prided themselves on their connection to Abraham because they were direct descendants of Abraham. So they had a lot of pride about that. So he tries to lighten up the conversation by saying, hey, guys, lighten up. Why can't you just be like your father Abraham and be glad I'm here? Ooh, that just didn't lighten things up very much. He says, after all, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. It's in John 8, 56. See here what he's saying? He's saying, I knew all about Abraham. You guys look to Abraham as your father and your, your ancestor, and you claim, your claim to fame is that you're descendants of Abraham. I knew all about Abraham. In fact, I'll go one step further. I knew Abraham. Mm. Of course, these guys are pretty smart, and they pick up on that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second. You're not even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And then everything was all better. No, <laughs> not at all. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that because he was saying, I am who I say I am because I knew Father Abraham. And he approved of me. To better understand that statement, it helps to know that I am is the name that God used to reveal himself to Moses. It's an amazing title. In fact, it is tailor fit for God. Because when you try to describe God, the most accurate description that you can probably come up with is he, he just is. He, he is. What is he? He, he just is. He exists fully. He exists everywhere, all the time. So in this statement, when Jesus says, I am, he is saying, I am not only older than Abraham, I have existed forever because I am God. He was God in the flesh. He was God with skin on. He is eternal. He has always existed. He will always exist because he is everlasting. Amen. Second part of that phrase is father. Yes, he was born a baby. But look what happened when Jesus grew up. He cared for people like a father does. He nurtured sick people back to health, just like a father would do. He prayed for people like a father does. He was there for people. He was strong and dependable, just like a father. If fathers are to be anything in the lives of their children... They ought to do certain things and hold certain places in their children's lives. For instance, fathers ought to believe in their children. You study the life of Jesus and you'll see someone who believed in people. 
Fathers ought to be firm but loving, which was exactly the way Jesus handled people. Fathers ought to provide a place out of which their children can derive an identity so they can say, I'm a Smith. I come from a long line of Smiths, and we Smiths know who we are. And Jesus did that over 2,000 years ago. Followers of his have been saying, I'm a Christian. I'm historically linked to generations of Christians all the way back to Jesus Christ himself. And we as Christians should also be able to say, and we Christians know who we are. About to get happy here. Fathers ought to be thinking about and planning for their children's future. John 14, 2, Jesus said, I am, going to I am going to prepare a place for you. What was he doing? He was thinking about his kid's future. Let me tell you two quick stories that illustrate the fatherliness of Jesus. One time, Jesus is traveling through Jerusalem, and he gets word, or he's traveling up to Jerusalem. He gets word that the king of Jerusalem, a man named Herod, wants to kill him. Jesus doesn't get all shaky and go, oh, what am I going to do? He didn't turn around and run back into the woods. Instead, he just keeps a steady pace as he's hiking out of the valley. A few hours later, as his head crests the hill, he looks out over the city of Jerusalem out in front of him, and almost a whisper, I believe, he says to himself, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often have I longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under wings, but you were not willing. Can you just hear the, the longing of a parent in those words? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you don't have any idea how much I care for you. How often have I wanted to just scoop you up and wrap my arms around you? Several months ago, we were driving down Providence Road we saw a duck on the sidewalk with its wings spread. And as we started, got a little bit closer, we saw that there was this big hawk that was like dive bombing this duck. I thought that was a bit odd to see a duck and a hawk randomly doing battle on the sidewalk. So as we got more cl closer, we, I saw what was really happening and then it made sense. The duck had several little baby ducks under those wings and was fending off this hawk by spreading the wings. And these little baby ducks were up under here, and every time that hawk would swoop, that, that duck would just wrap its arms like this, didn't worry about being hurt themselves, looking out for those baby ducks. There was no way that hawk was going to get to those babies because they were safe under the wings. It's what our everlasting Father does for us. When we are being attacked, we can find shelter under his wings. But just like those to whom Jesus was addressing in Luke 13, 34, we must be willing to let him. I wanted to do that, but you were not willing. Another time Jesus gets word that a close friend of his is near death. He heads for his friend's house. His friend was named Lazarus. And before he gets there, his friend has died. When word gets out that Jesus is just about to the village, his friend Lazarus' sister named Mary runs out of the house all the way down the street, and in sheer numbing agony, she falls on her face and collapses at Jesus' feet in a sobbing heap. 
Let's read what happened next. John 11, 32 and 33. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He was troubled. In other words, he was sad. He hurt because his friend Mary was hurting. His friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they replied, come with us and we'll show you. And then this next scripture is the shortest scripture in the Bible. It shows the humanity and the fatherly attributes of Jesus. It simply just says, Jesus wept. And all the people around saw this and they said, see how he loved him? I'd say that's pretty fatherly. Even as an adult. One of the things I miss most about my dad is when I'm struggling with something and being able to go to him and tell him what was wrong and have him wrap his arms around me. Tell me that he loved me. Tell me that it was going to be okay. And when that happened, all of a sudden, things seemed different because my father said it was going to be okay. Closing this morning, I'm going to ask if you would just Close your eyes for just a minute. Picture Jesus in a manger. We've, we probably have hundreds of pictures we've seen of Jesus in a manger. So just pick one. And picture that and hold on to it in your head for a second. You see that baby? He's tender. And as he grew into an adult, he was still tender in the way a father is toward his children. can open your eyes if you want to. Last week we discovered that the name found in Isaiah 9 and 6 just before everlasting father was it means the true God of Israel, the mighty one. And at the end of the message a number of us put our our hands on our laps with our palms up and opened our hands to God and said, "God, here's the stuff that's troubling me." And that felt good. Some people came to me and said, you know what, that, that just felt good to take all my stuff and just put it here and say here. But you know what the next move is? After we've handed him all the stuff that we don't want to hold on to or we can't hold on to or we can't figure out, after we hand him all of that, let him wrap, wrap his fatherly arms around you and just hold you for a minute. Listen to these words again, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often have I loved long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And again, if you would just indulge me for one more time, please close your eyes for a second. Just relax. Nobody in the room is watching. Everybody's eyes are closed. Take a minute and build a little hallway in your heart. 
And imagine now in your mind's eye, imagine yourself handing Jesus all the stuff that's troubling you. And take a breath and imagine him right now wrapping his arms, those fatherly arms around you. Maybe you could even let your shoulders heave a, a few sighs of relief knowing that you've given it to him. It's his now. Jesus, we thank you for being a father forever for us. May your tenderness overwhelm each one here today in brand new ways during this Christmas season because that's part of the promise your father made to us over 2,700 years ago. Amen. You can look up if you would like. If you're struggling with something today, would you just give it to the one who is the mighty one? the mighty God, and then allow him to be that everlasting father. He is here today to meet your needs. If you need prayer, we still believe that God's a healer. If you're struggling with something in life, you have come to a wall and you feel like I just keep beating my head on the wall and beating my head on the wall and I can't get through. He can get through. You keep beating your head on the wall, you'll probably just keep getting what you've been getting, a sore head. Give it to him. Allow him to be that everlasting father. He wants to be the everlasting father to you. So if you would stand this morning... We're going to sing a chorus. And if you would like to come and pray, if you would like to come for prayer, if you would like to come and just accept Christ, if you've never done that before, what better day to do it than on a day when we are specifically celebrating the birth of Christ? If you have never accepted him as your Savior, if you'll walk down here today, we'll talk, we'll pray with you. It won't save you by shaking my hand. But when you make that decision in your heart and you say, Lord, I, I, I've got stuff in my life that I need to get rid of. And once those things are gone, the Bible says that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are never to be remembered against us again. If you have never done that, would you do that this morning? For anyone who would like to come this morning, these altars are open. Let's sing a chorus. This is